Welcome to the Restart Radio Show, a very different show about gadgets on Resonance 104.4 FM. This is a different show because unlike most, we're not going to focus on all those new shiny, shiny things for you to buy. Instead, we focus on the value and the stuff we already have. The Restart Project aims for a shift of behavior towards a more sustainable and a happier relationship with electronics. Our monthly community electronics repair events here in London called Restart Parties are just the beginning. My name is Janet Gunter. I'm the co-founder of Restart and I'm joined by Neil who works with us. Hello. And today we're really happy to welcome Jim Bolton to the show. Hello. Jim is a digital archaeologist whose day job is digital director at Aesop Agency. Um, and he recently curated the 64 Bits exhibit here at Here East in Stratford. And 64 Bits was a really great, um, basically a walk back in time um, to the, the early web and the way we experienced the web, for the, I would say, for the past um, decades. Um, Neil, how did you experience the exhibit Oh, so we had a great uh, team visit uh, to to the 64 bits exhibition and it was a fantastic kind of nostalgic walk through both the hardware that we've grown up with and also looking back at the the websites which have been uh, uh, kind of within our history through um, since we w- when we've been growing up and seeing early websites and the, the advent of animated gifs and the different technologies that have been used in websites as well so it was a fantastic uh, kind of walk back through time both of hardware and software so we had a really fantastic visit there yeah so for example we saw a next computer which was the computer that tim berners lee used when he created the first website um and so um uh, how many computers did you have total in the exhibit, Jim? Um, well, the show's called 64 Bits, and yeah. there's 32 computers and 32 bits of artwork. Okay. 64 bits. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah. And um, and each computer is paired with a website, and that's that's really... I, I love that. And, and you had um, a, a mat underneath the computer that gave you a little bit of context and background for the website. Um, I remember actually really being slightly most... I was surprised that I was most moved by the... Um, I guess it would be the computers of the late 90s where I first became kind of enchanted with the internet and started even considering making my own p- web pages. Um, I believe it was, you had a couple of uh, magazines and um, early, really great attempts at, you know, creating online media with, and they had like shock, shockwave. <laughs> Macromedia shockwave. There you yeah. go. <laughs> yeah. um, that brought memories for me at least. Um, yeah, so I think uh, you might be talking about word.com. Okay. which was a, a fantastic, easy, I think it was from 95. And, um, and like you said, what I try and do, if I've got a website from 95, I try and show it on a machine from 95 and a browser from 95. I try and recreate the whole context in which the, the website was designed and built. And did some users, I mean, especially younger users or, or participants, actually um, have trouble using those browsers in the early, the early Internet? They didn't have so much trouble using the browsers, but I did get some great reactions from young kids. So, for example, one I think he was looking at the uh, Mac Color Classic from 1993, and he picked up the mouse and he went, whoa, it's got some kind of ball thing underneath it. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's, yeah, it's a lot of fun um, looking at the reactions. But when you look at talking about the usability, um, a lot of the functionality of the browsers hasn't changed much. We've got the first browser in there from 91 that Tim Berners-Lee uh, made, which does operate a little bit differently. But... The next generation of browsers, like the Mosaic browser, a lot of the functionality that you see in the Mosaic browser, you can still recognize today. They're very similar. It's true that in the sense that in the, even just the navigation and the, the general logic 
of the internet is is largely intact. Although I would say in the early days of the internet, there was much more, it felt like there was more serendipity and that the hyperlinking was the way that you traveled. So you weren't going through these, you know, portals, you were actually just following a thread. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Like, so the first Netscape browser has got cool site of the day, which is almost like a randomizer where you just click the button and it gives you the site of the day that somebody at Netscape has decided you should be looking at. Yeah. A lot, we've lost that kind of, as you said, that serendipity aspect to the web. And what are some of your favorite pieces from, from uh, or the computers and sites from the collection? Well, that's like trying to choose your favorite child. <laughs> but, um, I, like, it's, uh, I think some of the first are my favorites. So we've got um, Archie, which is the first search engine, which predates the web, in fact. It used to search FTP sites. And some amazing guys at the University of Warsaw in Poland have actually They've maintained it. They've kept they've kept it running, so you can still search on um, on on Archie as part of the show. So that's one of my favourites. We've got the first webcam in the show from 1993. Looking the, the coffee pot, the Trojan Room yeah. coffee yeah. pot. Yeah. So for those people who don't know the story, um, some students at Cambridge University in the computer department um, got a bit of fed up walking down the corridor um, to, to see if there was any coffee ready or, or not. So they pointed a CCTV camera at the coffee pot and and put it online. And the first webcam was born. Wow. Um, and yeah, 1993, I mean, that's like uh, it, within my definite memory. <laughs> so it's, it's amazing how, how I think what struck me is how, how, in a sense, how quick the innovation has been. I know that kids are probably like, oh, God, this stuff looks ancient. But f for me, it's, it's, it's all in my lifetime and it feels very yeah, fast. It's, it's not that long ago. I first put the exhibition on in 2010. And then I think... There was definitely a sense of why are you putting an exhibition on about the, about the web. This has only just been invented. But actually, just seven years later, I think that people are recognising there is an historical element to it, and things have moved on so fast in such a short period of time that um, some some kind of um, retrospective um, it is appropriate. And so, tell us um, about the history of this project. So it's not that you just all of a sudden collected this material and bam, there's an exhibit. You've been working on this for, for quite a while. So how did you start this digital archaeology project? So, so I got into the web, it sounds like a similar time to you, in the kind of late, late, mid to late 90s. And um, I, set, I set up a web agency um, called Large in um, 1998. And um, we were kind of, you know, as a small team of people, and we were, you know, exploring this new medium and having a, having a great time doing it. And I went to an exhibition of video games at the Barbican in 2002 called, called Game On, and it showed how fast video games had progressed from, from Pong to Tomb Raider in a 30-year period. And I could just see exactly the same acceleration happening in the web world at a much faster pace. And I thought somebody should do an exhibition like this for websites. And um, eight years later, nobody had, so I thought I'd do it myself. Mm -hmm. And is there a special reason why you choose the word archaeology? Is that I mean, I suppose it's kind of tongue-in-cheek, but um, tell us why you use that word. So um, my, when I first put the exhibition on in 2010, um, my business partner at the time is, um, is an interesting chap. He's actually John King, who was the lead singer of Gang of Four, but we worked in a, a digital agency um, together. And I was collecting all these old websites, and I was um, finding the media in the browsers to put them together. And he went, this is archaeology. This is digital archaeology. <laughs> and I thought, that's exactly what it is. And um, hence the name was, was born. 
So you you're a curator, but um, uh, you're not a curator by training in any in any respect. You basically you're an enthusiast for the technology. Yeah. Yeah, I kind like yeah. Sometimes I just think I'm a collector, but um, I, I suppose if you look at the definition of, of curator, that's what I do. I kind of like I am a custodian of um, of, of artifacts, and I kind of decide which ones that I think uh, should be uh, yeah in a, in a show in a kind of gallery or museum type environment. So yeah, I guess I am a curator. And I'm kind of interested in, in the, so the, I really like in terms of the experience of your exhibition and the, the way that people interact with it and participate, um, you know, the, the, I guess the, the current internet does provide us a lot of opportunities to, you know, kind of experience the past. There's these emulators and things. There's, there's a way in which you can, you know, everything retro and vintage is in fashion. Um, but it's there's something really special about actually using the original machine and not not divorcing, not trying to copy what was older, but actually presenting it as it was. Um, can yeah. can can you talk about that? You know the difference between you know an emulator or a copy and actually the original. Yeah. Um, so I suppose one of the, one of the things people often say to me is, "But doesn't the, the the Internet Archive collect all these websites? And can't I just go online and see the websites um, today?" And um, yes, it, largely you can. I mean, it, it does, it's a brilliant resource, but there are kind of broken links, and it's not—it's it's, it's not a comprehensive resource. But I think the main difference is if you look at a website on the Internet Archive, you have to look at it on today's browsers and today's monitors at today's processing speeds, and you don't get the real, the, the, the true experience that you would have done, you know, back in the day. So I really like showing them on the machines, on on the software of the time. And um, I've recoiled slightly from there was I did put a. Um, I, I was involved in putting um, Digital Revolution on at the, at the Barbican, and um, there's an artist called Olia Lialina who had this um, website called um, My Boyfriend Came Back From The War, and she actually said it was fine for me to put it in the show, but it, the bandwidth needed to be throttled back down to mm -hmm. 1996 modem speed, which I really enjoyed. But, um, yeah, that's not something that I put everybody through when they come to the exhibition. It's, um, yeah, today's download speeds. And I thought it was interesting to the point that you make there about uh, showcasing the software on the hardware of the time as well. So one of my favourite pieces from the exhibition was uh, the first website, so Tim Berners-Lee's first website running on an X-Cube, which I guess is what he would have programmed it on. And not only the first website, but also, I think, the first web browser as well, so the, the Nexus web browser, which Tim Berners-Lee wrote to, uh, for people to navigate these new websites. Um, so it was fascinating to see all of those three pieces together and it, it, it made me think about the the different uh, pieces that you have to um, kind of uh, preserve. So it's the hardware is one side of it, but also the software as well. And I wonder if there's more difficulty in preserving the hardware versus preserving the software or if which is the easier of the two to preserve. Yeah, I mean, as you say, it's definitely I say it's a three-part puzzle. So you've got the media itself, which is the website, and then you've got the, the software, the, the, the browser, and, and, and the hardware. And um, initially, I actually thought that the hardware would be pretty easy to get hold of. I'll just buy it off eBay. Um, and I thought the difficult thing was going to be downgrading the software uh, to, to the area-appropriate um, uh, version, um, which is pretty difficult. But what I hadn't actually anticipated was how, how difficult it would be to actually get hold of the code. Um, I was just asking, you know, initially I was just talking to people that I knew in the industry or friends of friends, and um, everybody was kind of willing in theory to give me the code, but actually when it came down to it, they either didn't know where it was or it was on an obsolete media format or when they actually looked for it, it was an older version. And actually I realised that actually 
it was the code itself, the media itself, that was the most fragile. Mm, that's it. it's something we're quite interested in. The, the restart project is the idea of obsolescence due to not just to the hardware failing, but also to the software becoming out of date. Um, so, for example, maybe it isn't it's not patched by uh, retailers and manufacturers. So by virtue of the software no longer running properly or existing, the hardware becomes defunct. Um, and so it's quite interesting there that one of the issues you faced was the, the software no longer being available, etc. So it's interesting to see the link between the two. Yeah. And, and you said also, it's interesting um, that, so the hardware wasn't necessarily the biggest challenge. I imagine there were a couple of computers that were maybe more difficult to maintain or you know is it what are the challenges in relation to hardware and digital artifacts there have to be some <laughs> yeah so uh, surprisingly actually it's the, the earlier machines are easier to maintain than, than the older ones so the particular mm -hmm. era of time I'm interested in is 1991 the launch of the first website to 2005 which is when Google Maps came out they're my two bookends and surprisingly that the the, the pre-98 the early 90s machines are actually easier to fix and maintain than the the more recent machines because they're more modular um, I blame Johnny Ive like, um, <laughs> if you're looking at the um, for example the classic uh, iMac G3 the the beautiful colored um, iMacs they're, they're fantastic machines but they, they're quite tricky to take to pieces and replace spare parts in Wow, yeah, I wouldn't have thought that because they, they almost look as though the case might somehow just pop off and they might be easy to, to maintain. But, yeah, they look, but no. they look like they do. Mm. <laughs> Last, the first time I had to take one to, to pieces, um, obviously I looked for somebody on YouTube who'd done it before and there was, a, I think there was a nine-year-old boy who'd bought one from a car boot sale who kind of filmed himself taking it, taking it to pieces. So, yeah, I learned everything I, knew, I know from a nine-year-old. Wow. Wow. Um, and, and CRTs generally, probably in future, will present um, some challenges in terms of maintenance, correct? Everyone's talking about how the soon there won't be spare parts for them, potentially. Yeah, um, yeah the CRT monitors, are there. they're the most um, endangered bit of hardware, I would say, because people just don't see a value in them. You can still get old computers, people put them on eBay thinking that a collector might be interested. But the CRT monitors, people just, you know, even if they're working, they just throw them out. They're just um, too heavy and cumbersome, and they just assume nobody wants them. So if you go to a recycling centre, for example, um, they have, might have all the boxes and all the boards in, in, inside, but you'll have all the CRT monitors just outside in the, in the, in the elements getting rained on and, and ruined. So, yeah, the CRT monitors are, are the trickiest Wow. Bits to maintain. Yeah, and they shouldn't be in the rain for just because of for environmental purposes, mm -hmm. probably. Okay. Well, um, that sounds that's 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 kind of in keeping with our our experience. Although um, we find that flat screens also provide a lot of hassles, and um, our people tend to give up on those quite easily as well. <laughs> You're listening to Restart Radio, and we're talking to digital archaeologist Jim Bolton about his work to, uh, well, to maintain uh, the early internet um, for people to experience and appreciate. Um, well, I was really, I was interested of this idea of of digital archaeology and curation, um, and whether you know, I, whether kind of mainstream big museums are starting to take note or take interest. Um, is this kind of curation and this kind of work valued um is that would you say or is well, i think everyone's been what, what i've been surprised about since i put this exhibition on is kind of how wide the appeal was i expected just 
people in the industry, like web designers from the 90s, would be interested in just reliving their glorious past. But um, actually, it's got it's got a, it's got a very wide appeal, and we've had like obviously you know people who were from from the industry really enjoy it. But um, it's got a real nostalgia element to it. People just like looking at the machines and generally remembering how websites used to function. Young people who can't imagine the world without the web, like playing around with the with the early days, and they can't believe. How terrible, how terrible it, it was. But also, like, like museums and galleries and academics have really been been supportive as well. So yeah, I've had a lot of a lot of support. Mm. It was nice to see. Uh, so there was the I say maybe fifteen to twenty BBC micros, and when we visited, there was a number of kids there who were doing their coding in BASIC on those early BBC micros. And I wonder if so with the is the BBC Micro a piece of uh, hardware which is easy to maintain, or because you have so many of them there? Yeah, so um, so the, I've got a number of partners who work with me at the exhibition, and one of which is the uh, Centre for Computing History in Cambridge, and um, they're the guys that supplied those BBC uh, computers, and they run a number of coding workshops for kids and parents and kids, and they run them on those old old machines, and um, yeah, I'm amazed actually that kids. Um, you know, find them so fascinating, and actually are prepared to sit down and go, th- you know, go through the the code and write about ten lines of, of code and create some animations or make some, make some make some noises. But what was also astonishing as well, we just left them there for the entirety of the, the duration of the show with just some photocopied notes. Oh, it really kind of rudimentary, um, setup, and um, yeah, people were quite happy to sit down and and have a go, and um, and the computers carried on working with virtually zero support for like you know being hammered by uh, school kids for three weeks and um, we didn't have one casualty. So, um, well, yeah. our whole team uh, was there right. programming yeah. as well. <laughs> and it was uh, kind of fun. The, I guess they're mechanical keyboards, those really heavy keyboards. Yeah. Um, it, it really does take you back, that particularly, I think. Um, it's it's good for... I mean, it's it's better... It's, it's more than just nostalgia value. I, I don't know. I think there is something almost mindful about that kind of use of computers that we, we're so overwhelmed and when we we open a laptop or when we turn on a computer there's just so much there there's something nice about just sitting and you know writing basic on a black screen yeah it really, yeah, yeah kind of the, the raw and immediate nature of it really you know i think it gives you a level of understanding about how a program actually works that is missing from yeah from today's uh, uh, environments with all graphic user interfaces and the whole kind of Windows environment. Yeah, it certainly took me back to my early days of learning to program, which was just copying out lines of BASIC from a book. And so it was nice to see kids uh, doing that again in the exhibition. Yeah, because I think one of the things that's surprising is the computers get more and more powerful. They also get uh, less and less visible. And it's kind of a good reminder that um, there's a layer of code behind almost everything. It's almost a uh, learn to program or be programmed message. Yeah, well, in our, from our perspective, also, like it's it's um, it's good to be reminded that um, computers are substantial things. They are big things. Um, we may have squashed them down and you know really flattened all the different components, um, but actually there are still things with minerals and um, just I think as things get miniaturized, we we actually we we lose an appreciation for the actual thingness of, of computing computers and the internet. Um, yeah, I think in response to that, I think somebody, uh, um, and it's something to do with the, the Centre for Computing History in Cambridge, have made a like a room-sized computer, room-sized computer uh, CPU, so you can actually stand there and see all the different bits functioning at a, you know, at a, a huge scale, and that really does give you an appreciation of, of how a computer works and remove some of the mystery. 
I think I've seen it. that on YouTube. Yeah, that, that's that's pretty cool. We'll try and include a link to that um, when we post this show online. Um, and would you say that the digital archaeology work that you're doing is getting easier or harder? You did mention that the newer machines in your exhibition were were more difficult. Um, but just looking at from from the last couple of years and thinking into the future, um, what is your work as a digital archaeologist going to be like? So in terms of um, rescuing and restoring the code, it's getting more difficult. Um, yeah, it, it, like when I, you know, when I first started doing it in 2010, I was, you know, one of the first sites that I, I restored was a site called Noodlebox that was made by a friend of mine called uh, Danny Brown in '96. When it was 14 years old, it was kind of it was within, you know, it was reasonable that he might have the code li- lying around as an existing um, somewhere. But um, when you go back to '91. And when you go forward now to 2017, obviously you're talking about is a 26-year period. It's a much more significant of time. It's um, yeah, it's easy to lose stuff in 26 years, or even throw it away. I mean, even just I was thinking about. I was actually um, this had me thinking. I was trying to find an, a copy of an early website that I made, and you know, basically it had to make it through how many different computer. I mean, it had to have been transferred through how many different hard drives or floppies or external media that no longer even exists yeah. to be here in the current day yeah um al- although it's cool that i can still open it because it's html it's uh, it's still it's a survivor really that data is lucky to be here at all yeah <laughs> what, I, what i try and do as part of every um show is do something that i'm calling a code amnesty um, which is maybe not totally accurate but where people can come in with old zip drives or old floppy disks um, or old super disks and um in conjunction with um, someone like the British Library or the Bit Curator Foundation, we can actually kind of rescue rescue the code and upload it to the to the cloud. So that's a really a really fun part of the show. Mm. And I wonder if there's anything to be said for uh, proprietary versus open source code, for example, closed versus open source. So I can imagine that going forwards a few years from now, some of the the, the Flash websites maybe they're going to be difficult to to run as uh, some of these more proprietary formats like Macromedia Shockwave start to disappear and uh, are no longer runnable. But maybe some of the code which is open source or, for example, as you said, the the HTML code is going to be open formats, open standards, uh, may have more longevity. Yeah, I think think you're right. Um, What's interesting about the Flash uh, websites is they tend to be kind of... um, I suppose more 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 enclosed, so you only need to get there's there's less files for you to actually mm-hmm. that you have to actually get to get hold of, and as long as you've got the right plugin from the right year, then you can get it to run relatively um, easily. Yeah, with um, and I suppose with the HTML files, what you can often find, if, even if people haven't got the entire site and they've got bits of it, you can even infer what the rest of the site, how the rest of the site would have been coded, um, which you which obviously can't do from a flash file. It's a bit more binary. You've either got it or you haven't. And, um, you know, in, in thinking about the future, um, one of the things I thought of actu- actually after leaving the exhibit was, you know, what, what will be the, maybe computers might not be the only thing that you might have in an exhibit like this in the future, especially as um, appliances and all kinds of things are becoming connected devices. So I was thinking about, you know, what would the future digital archaeology exhibit consist of? Would it have, you know, Alexa, the voice controlled assistant from Amazon, you know, and and how how will that change things if we have more and more connected devices um, and and even just all the software that goes into running those and and potentially almost the, another kind of Tower of Babel in terms of you know. yeah. So 
So we've got so the first webcam that we've got in the show that I mentioned earlier um, is obviously pointing at the uh, pointing at a coffee pot. So as part of the show, we've actually got that coffee pot, and we, well, not the coffee pot, but one very like it, and we've got a very similar CCTV camera. So we have started to kind of like try to archive an object as well as actually uh, the code. But yeah, as you say, it does add another level of of, of complexity, and. Um, as I mentioned, like, like, I think it's 2005, I think, is when websites really started to work properly with, with Google Maps and the fact you could pan it and you could zoom it and it didn't, you didn't have to refresh the whole page any, every time you made just a tiny, tiny change. So I'd really like to have the Google Maps website from 2005 as the final bookend. But that's a huge amount of, of, of data and it's a data that's kind of constantly evolving and, and changing, which makes it much more difficult to, to archive with a lot of the websites up until that point there's like there's there's a version it doesn't exist as kind of mm -hmm. multiple multiple versions yeah um and so one of the things that i think the 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 average visitor might not appreciate is all all of the all the work that you do to well to move around all this equipment and to plan these exhibitions and tell us um how you what you do with these 32 flight cases and computers how you store it and um what you plan to do in the future with with the uh the pieces that you've collected so yeah, I've put this on the show on several times since 2010, and in the most recent um, iteration, I decided to um, rather than casting them around in cardboard boxes, um, I would actually put them in something a little bit more robust, so flight cases. So I had a load of flight cases uh, made in RGB colours, red, green, and blue, and um, yeah, the exhibits actually sit in the flight case um, along with uh, a mouse mat a huge mouse mat, and the giant mouse mat goes on top of the flight case and then the exhibit goes on top of the mouse mat. And so it's a very kind of self-contained and modular exhibition, which means I can kind of scale it to, you know, from, like, I think, about the 300 square metres up into about 1,000 square metres, so it gives it a lot of flexibility. Um, and it's also great for obviously storing it and transporting, transporting it. They're sitting in a big yellow storage at the moment, um, and uh, taking up a lot of space, but the plan is to yeah, take the show on the road and um, around the UK or across Europe and even even globally. Because the, the great thing about it is, it every time I put it on in a new place, the 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 exhibition grows and evolves, and somebody will come along with a website from that was made by or in in the vicinity, and it'll actually they'll bring in the code for me to extract and restore, and it'll become part of the show. So it's a live and growing archive. And you, you're looking for a sponsor to help this become a reality, is that right? That is 100% right. And um, you have had sponsorship from big tech companies in the yeah, past. Yeah, so Google has sponsored it uh, in the past very successfully. It always gets a huge amount of uh, media coverage and um, really great response from people who come come to the show. Yes, yeah, so I'm looking for a, a, a brand partner who'd be interested in uh, benefiting from the huge amount of coverage the show gets. And we, I mean, we would really encourage people to think of this not only as a backward-looking exhibit, but it's it also reminds us of, of, of how things can last, and that actually, in future, um, we we will probably come back to we hope um, lasting hardware, last a more lasting, more durable relationship with technology and electronics. And so, in in, in a sense, this is not just backward-looking. It's also reminding us that things. Um, that we're going to come full circle in a sense and that things will last for longer. So I think it's it's really useful in, in, in that sense. And it, it really has people consider, yeah, the longevity of things and our relationship with them. So for that reason, I think it's it's really not just a kind of a, a whimsical look at the past, but it's, it's really provocative. 
Um, well, thanks for joining us, um, Jim, and um, we hope we look forward to hearing about the travels of the exhibition um, in future. Keep us posted. We'll we'll um, we'll let people know. Um, you've been listening to Restart Radio on Resonance one hundred four point four FM. Um, and if you have anything broken or sad that you need help with, with a battery or a plug, we have a restart party tonight in Brixton at the Brixton Pound Cafe from 6 to 9 p.m. And we can also help uh, with really old computers, anything. I mean, in fact, our volunteers love those kind of things. Um, so join us tonight if you have something to fix. You can find out more on our website, therestartproject.org. Or you can find us on Twitter or Facebook, The Restart Project. And thanks to OptoNoise and Cassini Sound for our music, which was made with lasers, spinning plastic discs, and discard electronics. Until next week. Thank you.